0: I was just after finishing work I got a phone call from the boyfriend. There was a, a mobile home beside his and he said, is missing, I can't find her. Our dogs are out, our car was there, our camera was there. Where is she? I fear the worst.
1: I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. 23-year-old Emer O'Loughlin stares from the picture in carefree abandon. Swinging on a hammock under a Thai beach hut, her hair tied back in a bobbin, she looks just like any other young woman with her whole life ahead of her. But within a year of the holiday snap being taken, Emer would be dead, her remains discovered in the burnt-out caravan of a neighbour. Now, 17 years on, her sister Pam and her father Johnny have told a new documentary how they cope with their grief and their hopes that drifter John Griffin, missing since that dreadful day, will eventually be brought home to Ireland to face questioning about her death. Emmer's case is one of four highlighted on the new TG Carr documentary series "Marrow in Our Mask." Today, I'm talking to producer April Kyo of Midas Productions about building trust with the families of victims, about the huge responsibility of telling the true story of the worst sort of crime, and about the ongoing battle of many for justice. This is Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com. April, tell me a little bit about Emir O'Loughlin, who she was and what happened to her um, when she was just 23.
2: Um, so Emer O. Laughlin was a twenty three year old art student. And um, she lived in Ennis Diamond, and that's where she grew up, and that's where her family, her father still lives there. and um, so twenty three year old art student really loved, well respected, very artistic. Um, She was a student in GTI studying art. She had just been accepted to NCAD here in Dublin. So I think her plan was that she was going to come to Dublin and do that course. You know, she had a a very exciting life ahead of her. And unfortunately, um, in April 2005, um, Emer was murdered. Her remains were found in a burnt out uh, mobile home. Um, and there is still an open investigation going in relation to Ingrid's death.
1: And actually, you know, I have sort of touched on this merger investigation a number of times over the years, but it isn't one of the most high-profile cases that we have in Ireland and um, the unsolved cases. I think the family have worked hard to keep it at the fore. And now this new series um, that will be on over the next couple of weeks. And Emer's story is is one episode in the series, but um, this will very much bring it to the fore again and, and highlight it. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the day that Emer was last seen.
2: Um, so on the day that Emer uh, was last seen that was the 8th of April 2005 um, that was the day of John Paul II's funeral And GTI was closed, um, along with all the schools and colleges in the country. Um, So Emer had the day off, and the electricity in the mobile home that herself and her boyfriend were living in at the time, um, the electricity wasn't working, so her phone needed to be charged. And they had a conversation, and it was decided that Emer would go over to her neighbor's mobile home to charge her phone, um, so it was about 10 a.m. and Emer's boyfriend left to go to work, and um, that was the last time that anyone seen Emer alive. So a couple of hours later, um, Emer's boyfriend got a phone call saying that his neighbor's mobile home was on fire, and um, so he obviously rushed home from work. By the time he got there, it had been on fire for a couple of hours, so it was quite badly burnt, um, So when Emer's boyfriend arrived to the scene, um, her car was there, her keys were there, and the two dogs were there. However, Emer was nowhere to be seen. Um, So he immediately got worried. He said Emer wouldn't have gone anywhere without the two dogs. Where they lived, it was um, very isolated. It was in the Burren in Clare. So she used to go on walks and take her sketch pad and take her camera, and she'd bring the dogs everywhere with her. So when she wasn't there, he immediately got worried. So he phoned the and They arrived later on that afternoon at about 4 pm, I think. And um, obviously he contacted Emer's father, Johnny O'Loughlin. He was on his way home from work when he got the news. So he arrived as well. It was very clear that there was human remains in where the mobile home was. um, So I think originally Emer's boyfriend had thought, God, the remains are too small to be of Emer's, but Obviously, at that stage, everything was sober and you, you couldn't tell. But Emer's, um dad, Johnny, even during the documentary, he references this and he says from the minute that he heard, he knew in his heart that it was her because it was so unusual and out of character for her to go anywhere without the dogs. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, you can you can often find that in, in cases that the families just know they just know something is wrong because it's just so out of character. Like, as they say, she wouldn't have gone with the dog. She more than likely would have been, you know, first to the scene if somebody else was in trouble. Um you spoke to her father. Was there other mem- members of the family that have um you know, been interviewed for the documentary and what have they to say?
2: So um, we have interviewed Johnny O'Loughlin and we have also interviewed Pamela O'Loughlin. Um, so that is Emer's sister. So at the time, um, Emer actually, she has two brothers and a sister. So at the time, um, her youngest brother, when he found out, he um, went to Dublin, which is where Emery's mother was living at the time. So went to Dublin uh, to tell her that Emery was missing. Obviously, there was no evidence at that stage to confirm that the remains were Emery's, but it's it's what they were thinking. Um, and then he actually flew to London, which is where Pamela was living at the time to tell her in person, and um, so and it was then confirmed a couple of days later that the remains were Emrys. And um, so yeah, we spoke to Pamela. Pamela is now living here in Ireland, and um, and I mean she has just been trying to keep this alive for the past seventeen years. And um, she started up a Facebook page called Justice for Emer O'Loughlin in two thousand and seven. And um, yeah, she they just want answers. They don't have justice.
1: We're going to listen to a few clips now um, to hear what the family have to say in regards to that.
0: Now I am deflated, beaten. It's sort of 16 years of my life just constantly trying to keep her memory going. Sort of following up on leads I got via her Facebook page. I've contacted through tattoo organizations, just about every tattooist on the planet at this point, to find out if anybody has covered over a throat tattoo in the last decade. Every, every day I would be on the internet. And last year I actually made the decision, I had to let my sister go. I needed to get a life back, basically. I I feel we're 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 losing grasp really. And and we're getting older and my huge fear is that she's just gonna fade, fade into the distance. And and be forgotten and we can't we can't do that. I think
1: what really stands out about this case um, was what happened next and in the days and weeks, really, after the discovery of Emer's body. Now, John Griffin was the neighbour whose mobile home was on fire, where she had what they believed was she had gone knocking to have her phone charged as, as their own electricity was down. But he, um, Griffin disappears and he, he tells police, first of all, that he has spent that night. He wasn't around the, the, the caravan park at all. He said that he had stayed uh, with a relative, but two days after the the, the body was discovered, he barricaded himself into a fort on, on an island off Ireland. And, and this is really where the story gets bizarre. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So uh, two days later, John Griffin was found on the island of Inishmoor. And um, he had barricaded himself inside Dune Angus Fort. Um, so he basically barricaded himself inside this fort and started throwing rocks at um, the public. Obviously, this is a massive tourist attraction. There were a lot of people there. Um, so he started throwing rocks at people and he was eventually persuaded by Gardie to remove himself. Um, so once he was resu- persuaded, it took them a couple of hours. I think it was five hours of negotiations to convince him to leave. Uh, he was then escorted to the mainland by ferry and he was brought to St. Bridget's Hospital for medical attention.
1: Mm, so he was pretty much admitted to a psych ward from there. Did he obviously was immediately a suspect or a person of interest, whatever way they would describe it as. It was in his caravan uh, where her body was discovered and he wasn't around. He's obviously behaving a little bit peculiar. Does anybody have anything to say about his behavior around this time or what might have sparked it? Uh, or was it normal that he barricaded himself into places and, and threw rocks at members of the public?
2: I mean, I, I really, I don't think that's a, that was normal whatsoever, um, which is why he was brought to St. Bridget's immediately. Um, no, I don't think this was normal behaviour, um, and that—that that is why I, I think he was a suspect also, because of how bizarre the behaviour was. So,
1: obviously, a little bit of pressure maybe coming on from that and what had happened, obviously, and, you know, the fact that, look... Police were obviously um, had him there as the the number one person of interest. I'm sure that was putting pressure on him. But he stays in the psych ward for some time. And on April the 18th, then he goes back to another island. He likes his islands, obviously. Mm,
2: So he he actually, he was there for five days in, in the psych ward and he signed himself out. So I know Emer's family and during the documentary, they have kind of asked these questions how did he sign himself out after five days who who let him leave that that hospital Um, was he not being watched you know these are all questions that he and his family have and he actually went back to the same island so he went back to Inishmore again Um, but then it's reported that he went back there but there hasn't been any sightings of him going back there so his clothes were found neatly folded on the cliff edge where he was again and It was, I suppose, there was a bit of speculation at the time. Did he take his own life? But there was a massive search carried out and nothing was found. His body was never found. This search went on for a long time. Um, So, again, there's questions around, did he get help? Did somebody leave his clothes there for him? Or did he get help leaving the island? And these are all questions to this day that Emir's family don't have answers to.
1: Yeah, I recall that at the time, whether or not he'd actually gone on to the island and if he had gone on, he would have had to come off and there was obviously no nobody, no witnesses saw him, etc. But really bizarre, the, the, the discovery of his clothes. Um, interestingly, in the first show on, on this series, you covered the case of Sandra Collins, which we have covered on the show here ourselves. And in that case... Wasn't it true that she went missing and sometime later an item of her clothing was found near a water's edge in an effort to make it look like perhaps there had been a a drowning, an accident or a suicide?
2: Exactly, yeah. So the first episode in this series was the murder of Sandra Collins, which again is is another open investigation. And yeah, somebody, it, it is believed that somebody left Sandra's jacket there. I mean, Bridie, who is Sandra's sister, said in the interview, in the documentary, that they had checked that pier. Her and her family members had walked up and down that pier numerous times and that jacket was not there. So somebody must have planted that.
1: Hmm. Interesting how the, the similarities are coming up in the two cases. But if we go back to Emiro O'Loughlin, what, what happens next with, with John Griffin?
2: Um, what happens next with John Griffin is that, well, a couple of years later, there was a notice on Interpol. And um, now this notice that was put up on Interpol, the information on it was incorrect, um, which is incredible, I think. And in the documentary, we speak to a couple of journalists and they have also said they were given the wrong facts. So at the time, the facts, they were were incorrect in terms of what was being given to the media by the Gardaí. All
1: oh, right. And what was incorrect about the, the facts? Were they given as wrong description
2: or what? I actually have the interval notice here. If I, I'll read one or two bits from it, if you don't mind, Nicola. Um, so it says here, um, it is suspected that Griffin set fire to the caravan after breaking in and assaulting the woman so it was never Emer's mobile home, and it was a mobile home, not a caravan, but it was never Emer's mobile home that was burned. It was the neighbour's mobile home. So, so that's massively wrong. Um, and also there is, sorry, there's a newspaper article. I'm just going to read something out here, like just to, I suppose, show you the extent of the wrong facts. So there is one here. Now, this was an article that Pamela had up on uh, the Facebook page, and it says one theory is that the young woman's mobile phone charger overheated and started the fire. Like, you know, it, it was just from the very beginning, it was referred to as a death. It wasn't referred to as a murder. And that is something that Emer's family, of course, are upset about because for it took years to even refer to Emer's case as a murder case.
1: And at some point, so I think she was buried in in 2005 after the discovery, but her body was re-exhumed then in 2010. And at that point, were forensics able to determine the cause of death?
2: Yes, at, at that point, um, they could de- determine that Emer's death was murder. So it was confirmed that she had died a violent death. Um, there was a knife actually found on the scene that day, similar to a machete knife. And then it was confirmed that that is how she died. So she had been murdered. And yet yeah, it was just very upsetting for the family that it took so long to establish that.
0: After the funeral, I stayed here in Ireland. I think it was a month. Um, just sort of not really wanting to to go. It was it was very difficult. I felt I needed to be here. I felt I needed to see what was happening. I I, I felt going back to the UK, I would be very much out out of the scene, out of the where everything was happening. Um, I just really wanted them to find who had done this and to get some justice, really, to get some answers for us because we were just completely confused as to why this had happened to Emer. I just wanted to know, you know, what the truth was. Right from the beginning of the investigation, the police have referred to Emer as a death and not a murder. And I started to question this and I started to ask the police why this was. And I was basically told that they didn't know how she died. So we buried her, not knowing the cause of death. In 2008, I was actually on a flight back um, from Ireland to England after coming home for her anniversary. And it suddenly dawned on me to use Facebook to set up a page which celebrated EMER, which gave as many details as I could about the case and encouraged people to come forward with information. So either information about the case, where John Griffin might be located, any other, anything really that could help us. When I spoke to the cold case squad and I got the answer, well, we don't know how she died, and I said, we'll bloody dig her up then. That was my, my exact words. Dig her up, find out. I spoke to my brother and I s- sort of asked him, would you be okay with this? I spoke to my mother, I said, would you be okay with this? And I basically said, we, we need to find out how she died, guys. That was out They pulled up a tent around the grave and dug it up right away. And then they found out they died of a violent death. And that's when it really kicked off. That's when John when Griffin was the suspect. Now, he should have been a suspect from day one
1: can totally understand their frustrations because, of course, in those five years, while Griffin's behaviour was a little bit chaotic, shall we say, in the beginning, um, you know, with the island, the standoff being, you know, admitted to hospital, then letting himself out and disappearing. But he had five years on them, basically. He had five years to disappear and. Exactly, that's what happened. There were certainly rumours around at some point that he may have been in Scotland and living amongst the homeless population. Did he not have a very distinctive tattoo, April, or something like that? So John
2: Griffin has um, a tattoo on his neck. Very distinctive. Very distinctive tattoo. Yeah, you wouldn't... Right on the Adam's apple, isn't it? Exactly. That's it. Yeah. I have met a few
1: people, actually, funny enough, with tattoos on their neck, but more sort of uh, wings and things like that going across the neck. But look, you know, it's very hard to hide that, isn't it, in all weathers?
2: It was reported that it was a Celtic tattoo. However, it was a tattoo, I think it was some kind of Egyptian symbol. Um, So that is a very, very important fact. And I mean, if you're looking out for somebody and you're looking for a Celtic tattoo and you see somebody and it's an Egyptian sign, they're very, very different.
0: They have constantly referred to it from the beginning as a Celtic tattoo, and it is not, it's it's an Egyptian tattoo, it's the eye of Horus, which may seem like a small detail, but if anybody's familiar with Egyptian symbology, they would know it's not a celtic. if if they were looking out for a Celtic tattoo, we'll no, that's that's Egyptian.
2: Um so yeah, there was. He had a tattoo. I also um know that when he left St Bridget's, And he cut his hair. So he made a a massive change to his appearance. He had dreadlocks initially and a beard. And he he cut all of his hair off, all the dreadlocks, shaved the beard. Um, So, yeah, it seems he made a change to his appearance to try and hide, I suppose. And he's still out there somewhere. He's still out there. Um, Yeah, so... he. In the documentary, uh, we speak to TG uh, TGK journalist Sinead N'Yachtin um, and she actually had interviewed Johnny herself um, regarding John Griffin and regarding a sighting that he was told about where John Griffin was seen in Morocco. Um, so she asked um, the Department of Justice um, if there was an extradition agreement in place between Ireland and Morocco to which she was told that there isn't an extradition agreement um, so look, that is the last place that Emir's family have been told he is there has been a signing of him there um, and as you said, in, in previous years he has been seen you know, in Europe um, so we're not sure, everybody, Emir's family and I think the current investigators think he is still out there Um, And who knows where he is.
1: And basically when they got established the cause of death in 2010, at that point, they then described this. This was no longer just an investigation. This was a murder investigation. Um, And have they any other suspects or is John Griffin the only person of interest in the case? John
2: Griffin is the only person of interest in this case. Um, he has been the only person of interest since day one, since he, he went missing and he fled the scene, really.
1: The show, which is going to go out once a week, is... Um the other two episodes are also very interesting and maybe not such high profile cases. So tell me about them. First of all, Thomas and, and Jack Blaine.
2: Yeah, so Thomas and Jack Blaine is the third episode in the series and um, that one will go out on the 1st of June. So um, that episode recalls the brutal murders of Jack and Thomas Blaine. Um, so Jack and Thomas Blaine are, were two elderly brothers. Um, they were very vulnerable in their old age. Um, They both had health issues, I mean, due to different reasons and also just to old age as well. Um, But they had been murdered by Alan Cawley, um, who was convicted of their murder in 2017. So Alan just entered the homes of Thomas and Jack Lane and brutally murdered the two of them. Um, It took a couple of years for that trial to go ahead um, as he was pleading diminished responsibility, but eventually he was sentenced to life for their murder.
1: And the final episode is going to centre on the death of Anne Walsh.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So Anne Walsh uh, was 23 years old and lived in Kilrush in Clare. So this was in 2005, in August of 2005. So Anne was strangled by her former boyfriend, Raymond Donovan, um, in the grounds of the local church in Kilrush. So he was convicted of Anne's murder. However, he does remain one step closer to his eventual release.
1: So in taking these cases, um, like, you know, there's so many, I think, in... um, Back in 2008 or thereabouts, when the Garda's cold case unit was set up, there was said to be 200 unsolved murders in the country. Uh, I don't know what that figure is nowadays, probably more. But how do you go about, uh, you know, telling these stories and maybe identifying stories that are worth bringing to the screen?
2: Yeah, well, I suppose it's a lot of research is is involved, but like it's just contacting the families and if the families have been very vocal in the media um, or if it's clear through reading certain articles that they have something you know that they haven't received justice for their loved one then it's quite evident that maybe they'd be open to having a conversation about doing something like this and so that's how we would go about it is as a company we would contact these families and just say look let's meet up have a chat a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. And if you don't want to do it, that's no problem. Like we make sure that we show each family, the documentary before it is ever broadcast. So Every family who has participated in this series has seen the documentary. Um, and fortunately enough, they've all been happy with it. And if there was anything that they weren't happy with, we would change it. You know, they. we really do. We want them to be very happy with the end product. And that is always our goal.
1: Because it can be a big leap for people, I suppose, can't it? To, to go from giving an interview that may appear in a newspaper or then you have maybe radio shows. and But To go on camera can be quite daunting for people.
2: Of course, and it's very important that we build a relationship with them. The trust is extremely important. A lot of families, I suppose, in some cases, just haven't been treated very well by the media. And we always want to avoid that. And we want them to be happy with whatever it is that is broadcast at the end of the day.
1: And I noticed that central to all the shows is that you have very much worked hard on trying to present the victim. Um, as the, the human being they were and to try and, you know, I suppose, create a, a. a in one way, it's a bit of a, a memory for families that somebody has been brought to life on the screen again for, for people who may not have known them.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that can be very hard for the families. Like it's, they would be very tired after doing their interviews and, you know, they give us as much personal archive, family photos, videos that they have and um, but yeah, I think they do, in a way, they they like watching these documentaries because it does, it brings it brings the person to life again, you know. It just shows how amazing they were as people and I, yeah, that's it really.
1: And it gives maybe the families a little bit contr- of control of the narrative as opposed to, you know, when journalists are, are reporting it the way they see it, but when the families themselves get an opportunity to, to tell little anecdotes about the, the victims that maybe just... Can, uh, can warm people to, the, to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some lovely stories um, that the families do tell us. And um, especially, you know, in, in Emer's case, Johnny was in the documentary, he tells us the story about one day when they bought a Shetland pony and put the pony into the back of the van. And, you know, it's reminiscing with the families and all of those lovely stories that they do have of their loved ones and also remembering them. So Johnny, for example, Emer's dad has a boat that he brings to the scanner and on the boat they have hand painted the words Lady Emer. And he says how people ask him about Eimear all the time and he loves to talk about it and he loves to remember her. Um, so, yeah, I think in in that sense, it can be good. And, and the families, they do enjoy talking about their loved ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, let's hope some of these shows will, uh, you know, certainly in the cases of uh, Unsolved and in the case of John Griffin, somebody out there is going to see him somewhere, um, you know, Morocco ain't that far away. A lot of people go on holidays and, you know, it's really a case of just to get that break, isn't it, for investigators?
2: Yeah, that's all it is. I mean, it's just the case of if anybody sees him just reported immediately to the Gardaí he has been sighted in several places and it's just looking for fresh leads and it's never too late these families are never ever going to stop looking Um, so yeah if anybody has any information really just to come forward to the Gardaí Okay, April thank you very much Thank you
1: You've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.